Scars Left Behind, episode 15, We Need to Rename ADHD, and medical students should be vaccinated by any other name would smell as sweet. It is an often used quote, and for good reason. Juliet tragically underestimated the impact of the Montague surname. She was not the first, nor the last, to underestimate the power of the names we give. In psychiatry, handbooks determine which names or classifications we give to the difficulties that people face. We use them so that when we say ADHD, schizophrenia or depression, people have a more or less consistent idea of what we mean. Moreover, it enables us to study groups of people with the same classification and learn about treatments and prognostics. However, a severe and often overlooked side effect of this practice is that these names implicitly suggest causality. The classificatory terms we use all refer to disorders, cause symptoms and therefore suggest that we understand the causes of the problems, which we do not. At the very least, the term disorder suggests a common causal structure which goes against all our current knowledge on causal heterogeneity in psychiatry. Moreover, these classifications are applied to individuals and therefore suggest that causes lie mainly with the affected individual. The most common psychiatric handbook, DSM-5 and ICD-11, are clear on the status of their classifications. They are purely descriptive and are not based on underlying causes. Still, in practice, we say things like, he is inattentive at school because he has ADHD. It is a circular statement. A child is inattentive because his inattentiveness, when we say that someone has an attention deficit, we are inclined to look for the cause of the problem. But when we say someone has an attention deficit disorder, we may we might wrongly assume we have already found the cause, or in a milder version, assume the cause to be located somewhere in the brain of the individual. On the surface, this may seem like a silly, innocent mistake. However, social scientists have shown time and again that this systematically places the problem with the individual and diverts our focus away from the context, e.g. family, school, work, where traits lead to problems. One clear example is the relative age effect in ADHD. The youngest students in class get diagnosed with ADHD more often and receive more ADHD medication than their older classmates. It is the mirror image of the well-known relative age effect in professional sports, where relative maturity in young athletes is mistaken for talent. It seems that in ADHD diagnostics, relative immaturity can be mistaken for ADHD. A consequence of these children being unfairly and unfavourably compared to their older classmates. So how does this work? 
How does our system of psychiatric classification divert our attention away from the context of the child and his problems? When a relatively young child presents with attention problems, an ADHD classification is readily available. It is a name that is comprehensible to to clinicians, parents and teachers alike. Moreover, as the term ADHD implicitly refers to a known cause, this name seems to provide both a distinct explanation and a clear perspective for treatment. As a result, one element of the child's context being young compared to his classmates is overlooked, and as such, a possible starting point for interventions is missed. The question, how can we best handle this child's difficulties in this particular context is replaced by how can we best treat his ADHD. Furthermore, the individual context has an even more elusive counterpart, the societal context. For instance, school systems with greater flexibility for delayed school entry if that fits a child's development better also seem to have lower rates of ADHD. Elements in a child's individual context that may be overlooked include a divorce, sleeping problems or poverty. However, clinicians are trained to consider individual context and are therefore equipped to evade some of the risks of false causality, with the exception of the relative age effect. By contrast, A child's societal context, e.g. state regulations on class size or the implementation of a debt relief program, lies well beyond the view of mental health professionals. We would like to argue that the biggest risk lies here by presenting psychiatric classifications, ADHD in this case, as as explanations rather than descriptions. We risk overlooking a variety of societal options to increase children's well-being. In any case, ADHD does not cause attention problems, any more than low socioeconomic status causes poverty. Attention problems are just that. Problems that are a part of the definition of ADHD. We propose a very basic modification to our current system of psychiatric classification that has the potential to bring the strength of descriptive classifications into balance. Within the pitfalls of falsely assuming a known and common cause, our modification is as simple as it is effective. Drop the term disorder from all classifications. Just drop it. In the case of ADHD, call it attention deficit and or hyperactivity. Nothing is lost in terms of definition, ease of communication or accessibility to research, nor does it detract from the significance of the problems that people face. The only thing we will lose is the false suggestion that when we use a psychiatric name, we understand the causes of the problem at hand. In its place, we would gain an incentive to see a child in his full context and explore all options for improvement. Could it be this simple? Could it be that 
the omission of a single word can change the way we approach children and parents in need of help. We would like to come back to the lesson Judith learned the hard way. Never underestimate the power of the names we give, not for what they are, but for what they represent. Meet ADH, Attention Deficit and or Hyperactivity, no surname. Early January, medical students across the US have joined physicians, surgeons, nurses and hospital employees in vaccination rollouts. When Trump's CDC released the Phase 1A guideline to vaccinate healthcare workers first along with long-term care residents, patient-centred goals were not a factor in the decision. States were left to decide if, for example, COVID-19 facing healthcare workers or providers who see patients in person or simply all healthcare workers should be prioritised. The ambiguity of the national guideline and the patchwork rollout led to wide discrepancies in where medical students were placed on the priority list. While schools like Yale, NYU, Michigan and Northwestern included all medical students in the first wave, Others, including Duke, UCLA, Tufts, UNC, Emory, Georgetown, and Thomas Jefferson, categorised students according to hours of patient contact or the risks of their current rotation, putting them in Group 1B and beyond. Meanwhile, many schools have continued to encourage students to volunteer in COVID-19 task forces to administer vaccines to Group 1A Health, care workers and now to elderly community members, all while they themselves may not know when they will receive their first dose. The results amidst a deluge of student vaccination selfies is tension among students, families and university administration Amplifying an already taxing atmosphere, we open Twitter to see classmates urging medical students who have in-person or online classes to consciously object to vaccine doses that could, in theory, go to high-risk patients. We feel guilty for receiving the vaccine when we too are logging into Zoom every day, but we also recognise the reality of wasted doses across the country and the benefits of vaccinating one more body to protect our community at the grocery store, on the subway or at our free clinic. Some students have expressed distress with how their school appears to undervalue them despite known or equal risks compared to other medical school students. Spending hours examining an unmasked patient in intimate physical proximity is anti-antithetical to most COVID-19 era instructions, but still being asked of many medical students, the protocol patchiness creates odd situations even within household pods 
One of the authors at Harvard was vaccinated a month before her partner at Tufts. He attends multiple in-person sessions per week with students and faculty who see patients. While she is online, except for one day a week, in the the hospital with non-COVID-19 patients, trying to pass meaningful differences in their exposure takes a back seat to supply constraints. The Harvard hospitals had enough shots for all medical students, while Tufts did not feel so confident in their stock and told students to seek shots on their own. What emerges from these frictions is a structural problem disguised as an as individual guilt instead of locating the problem within the system the problem becomes us and our failure to object or advocate for others like campaigns to recycle plastic goods and turn off the lights rather than push for comprehensive climate change legislation in this paradigm, a medical student receiving a vaccine feels guilty imagining a medically frail senior or essential worker whom they feel is more deserving. It's hard because the, those people are often our friends and family, and we know their stories and fears too well. But the individual guilt we feel may waste precious doses and precious time. Whatever our wishes for the system, We are the ones eligible right now, and when so many are not. Allocating scarce resources is a classic and much-discussed problem in bioethics. In its Phase 1a guidelines of health care workers and long-term care residents, the CDC combined utilitarian and prioritarianist approaches. Utilitarianism tries to maximise total benefit, although what total benefit means changes depending on the situation. The prioritarian framework favours the worst off, which again may change situationally. But here applies to nursing home residents who have borne the brunt of COVID-19 deaths. States that have opened vaccinations to residents over 75 or 65 are also using a prioritarian Prioritarian framework. The utilitarian argument for vaccinating all healthcare workers is that they can continue to care for sick patients and turn out immunised trainees to increase workforce capacity. In other words, they are desperately critically useful. U- utilitarianism seems less compelling for the first or second year medical st- would medical student who has yet to formally enter their hospital rotation or assist in any medical decision making and who may just be taking their first blood pressure reading on another person after months of being on zoom but vaccination efforts require healthy committed bodies to train and administer shots into arms especially as allocation phases include more and more people the utilitarian framework could also be applied to the CDC guideline itself. Is it more useful to follow the vaccination phases as already written or not? Will we get to the end of the pandemic faster by following the guidelines we have?
or changing them midstream. We are taught in CPR training that effective life saving follows a clear procedure through to the end, as efficiently as possible. You reflect on the process only after the patient is breathing again. This pandemic is an ever-increasing, ever-intensifying emergency. For better or for worse, in their December statement, the CDC guidelines indicated vaccinations for all healthcare workers, which included medical students. If we stop now to adjudicate specific comparisons between a medical student and a newly eligible 75-year-old, we will lose time for everyone and everyone may be worse off. For the individual student, the the discrepancies in the vaccine rollouts have widened differences among students between and within medical medical schools. Students included in the 1A groups or immediately notified of leftover doses may leave the pandemic with a stronger sense of their place in healthcare and their active role in responding to present and future public health crises. Medical schools have worked hard to undo toxic cultures from a pimping and instructor rapidly firing difficult questions at a student, to public humiliation, to military language. But the birth school hierarchy within medicine that has always prioritised certain bodies over others has been reinforced by the lack of uniformity in vaccination medical in vaccinating medical students and even residents. <laughs> While not without exceptions, there seems to be a gap in wealth and prestige between the schools that covered all students and those that did not or could not. This gap may have had a direct effect on the safety of students all of whom will be needed to provide care in this country, no matter the search. It became clear that the most critical shortage is staff stuff. We face provider shortages in many important specialties, including primary care, telling students that they are on their own to find a COVID-19 vaccine contributes to burnout, fear and potentially the disease that threatens our healthcare system itself, a system that reduces total benefits and fails to benefit those that are worse off. As a community, culture and institution, medicine has missed a vital opportunity to empower and unify its students and trainee physicians as invaluable members of the workforce they have already begun to serve. On social media, Head on over to Instagram at Scars Left Behind. That's behind without E. You can also find us on Facebook at SLB Podcast. You can also find me on Twitter if you want to follow me on my personal on my personal Twitter at int xx queer xx. You can also find us on our chosen platform such as Apple Podcast, Acast, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, Amazon Music and Anchor.